Welcome to Connecting Cultures with Wei Rong Li. Today, as you can see with the setup, is a special edition. For those who are celebrating Christmas, today we are celebrating in the spirit of joy and giving with this episode. And in particular, we are having our very special third culture and global mobility pioneer again with us for part two of the interview. Because as you guys may know from watching the first episode, there was a lot more that we wanted to dive into and explore together. Therefore, I have the pleasure of having again, Dr. Rufan Reikin as the guest for today's interview. Welcome again. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Rufan Reikin. Thank you for having me. It's uh, really fun to be with you and to get to chat about my favorite topic. So love it. I know we'll have fun today. We will. We talked a lot last time about third culture kids, cross-cultural kids, about your personal story going up in Nigeria, but as well as with your own challenges and grief. I want to go into the feeling and story of being uprooted, not understanding how do we properly transition? How do we properly find connection and grounding despite that? Can we go into this topic? Because I think this would be something that it's interesting for a lot of people who are watching. Well, I think that you're exactly right. That was the main reason I didn't understand my story. I didn't realize the impact of multiple separations and losses and restartings. And I kept thinking, what's the matter with me that I'm sort of not doing life smoothly? I think the best thing would be my father's mantra, which was, wherever you go, he says, unpack your bag and plant your trees. Mm. And with that, I mean, he, he was also a third culture kid. He didn't know that before he died, but he would give me good advice. And I think when I think about my own story and what my father's advice, these are the two things I would put together. Say goodbye well. I think I didn't understand about saying goodbye because often I thought about the next thing and I kind of skipped over the goodbye time. And a lot of times I think, oh, I don't like my friends and I don't. I can't wait to leave. And I didn't really stop and say goodbye. So I think when you say goodbye, you say goodbye. You know, you try and affirm where you've been because it's always good for us to be thankful. And there's a lot to be thankful for, even when we're leaving. And then just take the time to say goodbye to your friends, to have parties, to not just skip over that. Because sometimes people think if I say goodbye, I'm going to feel worse. Mm. But you'll feel better because you feel worse if you've said goodbye and especially if you've been pulling back like we all do uh, a lot of times you can really mess up relationships in those last minutes because they wonder why you're withdrawing and you wonder why they're withdrawing so trying to stay connected till the end is helpful how do you say how do you say goodbye well is there an art or technique of saying goodbye properly i think the basic point is not only do you try to Dave Pollack built the raft where he says you have reconciliation. If your relationships, you should try and leave as best you can with your relationships mm. in good order so you can come back. Otherwise, you don't want to see them again. Mm. Then you do want to affirm. That's what I was saying about, you know, saying thank you, maybe having a party, but writing notes to people, taking time to say thank you for what a good friend you've been. Thank you for what you've added to my life in this time. 
And then we say farewell. And I think, you know, having a party, but acknowledging this is going to be a change. There's a difference between leaving and the change. It's the paradox that even if we're leaving, there's going to be grief, even if we're going to something wonderful. So taking time to say, you know, I'm going to miss you. And that's the thing that I think in my early years, my parents left for four years and I just got really crabby at the end. That was how I coped with leaving. I thought if I get mad and I don't like my friends, I don't like my family that, you know, it'll be okay. But then when they leave or just about to leave, you think I've wasted all this time and I really don't want them to go or I don't want to go myself. So I think we have to acknowledge that there's going to be a loss that we've appreciated what we've had. And it's not just to people, it's also to the place. Take pictures, keep mm. something in your memory. Places are important in our lives. They give us context, they give us meaning. And if you have pets, either say goodbye to them or take them with you. And there's always things that we want to take that remind us of the place. I have a, a V ring from Liberia. We would call that a sacred object, you know. Mm. Other people don't know when they see my hand that that's a reminder to me of an important part of my life. And so you say goodbye by being conscious about it, not forgetting it. I mean, not thinking, I'll just sneak out. Don't just sneak out. Take the time to say goodbye. And when you've said goodbye well, that's what we usually do like in a funeral, you know, where you acknowledge the person, you commend them and you, you have memories. And then you think ahead because life will go on and you want to think, how do I prepare for the next place? And then when you get there, as my father said, unpack your bags mentally and physically and plant your trees. He told me, he said, so many people who move a lot keep waiting to move and they never live where they are. And so even if you're there for six months or 12 months, so you might be there 20 years, he said, people always keep thinking they're going to leave. And so they never really root. And he said, the reason you plant trees instead of just little rose bushes or something is because they're going to stay. And if you're not there to eat the fruit later, somebody will. Mm. And so don't be afraid to plant the trees. So to me, that, those things um, have helped me so that when I'm in a place, I live consciously. Even when I do conferences, I still have to live, be present in the conference because otherwise I won't engage with the people. Mm. I think, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm never going to see him again. But it does matter because in that moment, that's what I'm living and who I'm learning from, who I'm interacting with. And it's important to be present in the moment as best we can. Beautiful. My question to that is, how do you plant your trees? Can you give us an example or a story of when you felt you've properly planted despite knowing that you will have to move again in the future. How did you properly plant your trees, Ruth? Well, I've actually planted trees. Uh, when we moved to Indianapolis, we planted a tree. When we've moved to different places, we plant a tree just because that's part of the symbolism for us mm. of being there. But I think the other thing for me is taking time. When I say being present, to me, that's planting a tree. I may never see this person again if I'm at a conference, but I want to hear their story. I want to be invested in their lives, even for that little moment, because I don't know what that moment will be for them or for me later, how that relationship will continue or not continue. Some of the relationships I've met 
have continued through my life that I've just met in a passing conference. Other ones are just in that moment, but maybe I hear later, oh, I remember, and this is what happened. Or I remember also in my life has changed. But I think being invested in what we're doing and not just thinking, well, it doesn't matter. We never know what matters in our lives and what moments matter. And some things that seem like passing, you know, just uh, occurrences wind up being some of the deepest relationships I've had long-term. Mm. So yeah. I think for me, that's what planning a tree means. Um, yeah. Realizing yeah. this moment is important, even if I don't fully know why. Mm. You have five questions and you get less than a minute to answer each question. These are going to be very fast, but also simple questions. Feel free to mention whatever comes to your mind the first second. Shall we start? This, we can start. This may be a challenge. I don't think fast, but let's go. You will do absolutely wonderful. First question. What's a frequent travel location that you love? I love to be in Kenya. But yeah. I love to be many places, so that's kind of a hard question because each one has its own uh, beauty. And actually, relate kind of in relation to that is, you grew up in Nigeria, right? So, right. What quality of Nigerian people do you appreciate the most? I love how warm and friendly and kind. I think, unlike American culture. The culture in Africa is to invite strangers in, to be kind, to give them food, to be hospitable. So I think hospitality mm. is certainly one huge gift that I received from them growing up and many since then. Mm. And what is one word to describe your TCK upbringing? Amazing. Amazing. One word message that you like to deliver to TCKs and CCKs? Enjoy the journey, if I can give three words. <laughs> I, will, I will give you the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> yeah, of course. And now, in the spirit of Christmas, what is your favorite Christmas tradition in any of the cultures that you grew up with? There's so many, but one of the ones, when I was a child in Nigeria, my father had a he was the principal of the school. And in the middle of the night, the students would come and sing outside as the angels appeared to the shepherds on the fields in the middle of the night. And so that was what you would go to sleep with, waiting for the angels to come and sing and announce that Christmas had begun. So that was uh, a wonderful. Wonderful tradition. Then we always ask my parents if we could stay up and do our stockings, but sometimes they send us back to bed first. <laughs> I understand that. And you mentioned about documenting your journey, right? Documenting it through images, documenting it through writing. And you mentioned in the last episode that you kept your thoughts by journaling, right? And how much Absolutely. that meant for you to actually dissect your experience and your grief. Yes. How do you think documenting your story in whatever format, how does that relate to storytelling? Because, you know, we are basically building up our own storyline, right? Well, that's a great point. Everybody has a unique story. There's a place that we all connect in our humanness. We all want relationship. We all want 
uh, somebody to understand us. We all want to be creative and we want to have significance. But each one of us is also absolutely unique. And so we each find our way to document our story or to live it. For me, you're right, journaling is the way I do it. The way my mind works, I'm a process person. So I don't even know what I'm thinking a lot of times until I'm writing it or until I'm somehow speaking it. Mm. And so one of the things, uh, I had breast cancer 22 years ago and to process that journey in writing has captured for me what that experience was. And it was interesting before I always just journaled as um, like in a prose form. And all of a sudden I started writing in a poetry form, mm. which was totally different than I've ever done before. And I thought, it's not interesting. It was like short, tiny snippets of my feelings. And one of the things that I captured was just the phrase, you know, let my question was, what is in a word? Why is this word cancer so powerful? What is it doing to me? Mm. And so by the end of, after I journaled, you know, and said, I don't know what the end will be and things like that. I said, let cancer name my disease, but not name me. And that was for me, the little mantra I took all through the time of my treatments and, and things like that was, mm. I have cancer, but cancer is not who I am. Mm. And if I can say I had cancer, I mean, you know, from the beginning, they thought they had it. And obviously um, I'm still here and I'm very grateful for that. But that's what journaling does for me. It captures something that I can go back to and keep. Mm. And other people do it through art, gorgeous artwork I've seen. And however you've been made to be uh, is how you can do it. I did have a funny thing. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and they had all this art stuff out that you were supposed to you know, express your life through. And I laughed and I said, you know, I gave that up a long time ago because I used to feel so much shame that I couldn't do art. And these other people have these beautiful expressions. You know, this is my Africa self. This is my other self. And they're telling their story through art. And it's wonderful. And I love to listen to it. But I don't have any way in me to do it that way. But I love symbols. I love, you know, my ring. I keep uh, instruments from all over the world. But it's very important mm. that we have these things that speak about who we are that maybe other people wouldn't see. I would like to go into what you mentioned just, just right now regarding identity. And you mentioned particularly that, you know, during your difficult period, you were able to identify, this is me, and this is just mm -hmm. something that externally that happened. As third culture kids, as cross-cultural kids, we often have a whole bunch of these identities. And it's mm -hmm. so hard for us to all juggle. How do you think our capacity of growing up in such a mixed background and identity has helped us identify ourselves and properly categorize our situation in situations not related to culture. For example, what you mentioned, right? Well, I think there's a part of me, no matter where I am, I will be me. The way my mind thinks and processes things is going to be whatever culture I'm in. I'll look at it. I'll think about it. You know, I'll process it. I'll wonder about it. I think in questions, no matter where I am. Other people don't think in questions, but mm. that's how I think. So when I start to see how, what, what is the same uh, about me, no matter where I am, I can, you know, appreciate that. I also 
can appreciate listening to stories in all these cultures because there is this place of connection with people that the details of their story are different. But the essence of our humanness, you know, is connecting place. And then I start to think, you know, I'm not just uh, pretending to switch. Uh, somebody said a long time ago, he said, you know, my life is like windows. I know all the windows are open, all the whatever are open, but I have to operate in the one that's on the screen. And so I've come to embrace that actually I have many places I feel at home. I feel at home in different ways. If I'm in Africa, I feel at home in this wonderful transcendent way of, you know, this is the world I know and I love it. But I also feel at home when I'm in the international community in any place, because I think, you know, people share my story here. They understand I feel very at home here in Indianapolis when I'm with my grandkids. Mm. And I think we can learn to be the many. And yet we are all in one. It's I'm still me but I have these many different places that just make my life even richer mm. rather than trying to have to choose. I think one of the problems is that traditionally people have been identified by either their nationality or ethnicity in sort of a total way. But if people look at me, they're not going to see Africa. So we have sort of these hidden identities that we in the end have to affirm for ourselves. But also that's why when we meet on a, on a podcast like this, I would guess that a lot of people who are listening to your TV show also have many senses of being at home and many senses of this is who I am, but it's also I'm the other and it's okay yeah. uh, mm. to be all of the above. Absolutely. And I'd also like to kind of mention a point which is regarding cross-cultural skill sets and individuals having this capability again to have experienced a life very rich because of their travels, because of their interactions. And with that, assuming that they would also have a lot of skill sets, practical, you know, soft or hard. How do you think cross-cultural kids contributes to the global mobility workforce and the entire kind of economy? What is our role? I think a lot of times we don't even know what we are giving because it's so much part of us. I was doing something on... Uh, diversity for some company and we were talking about what the skill sets were and this person who was from another culture that was very warm and personal and all that. He said, I never thought about that. People always say I'm kind of the peacemaker. I kind of see all sides. And he said, I never thought about that as coming from my childhood where we negotiate different cultural worlds and cultural views. I think certainly many people speak many languages and or at least more than one. And that is another skill set that is very important in the globalizing world. One person who worked for HR said, um, we don't even look at an application if they don't speak at least two languages. But much more than that, I think, at least if I think about my life, my greatest joy is that I've had friends from all kinds of cultures and places and colors and people. And each one has taught me something. Each one has you know, been a rich part of my life, but I think then we can also help other people understand when something happens and they're thinking, well, what's the matter with that person? You think, no, you, that's a cultural thing in that place. They're not just being weird, but the left hand can be, as you know, in some cultures, a very important thing that you don't give things with your left hand. When we were in Liberia, my husband's a pediatrician. 
he had to change his desk so that he could only give prescriptions when he passed them out to his people with his right hand mm. because he realized that when he was sitting a certain way and gave it with his left hand, they didn't think that it was um, important. Mm. And so I think when you become aware that there are just different ways people do things, it helps you pay attention and not just demand, you know, he didn't demand, okay, you've got to accept it because it's from my left hand and I don't care. It's like, I can adjust then to how you think because it's a small thing. I don't have to fight about this. Mm. And I think that it's those kind of things over and over. And then we have to have a sense of humor. I don't know everybody else's culture and I'm going to make mistakes. But I think if I can do it with grace and apologies and sometimes with humor, um, then it's, you know, we make it. And we learn and we keep growing. And it's fun. Mm. It's really fun. I, I love that point, how your example that you gave of your husband and having to adapt with the different cultural customs of using a right or a left hand, that I feel like being in between and among so many different experiences constantly gives us this flexibility, right? Gives us this right. maybe. It's not a yes or a no definite, but it's something, okay, we can work in between. Either or, right? right? That's a skill set that we've gained. Absolutely. That's right. And there's some things, you know, you won't change um, because I'm used to doing them a certain way or, um, you know, just they're, they're my habits. But as um, someone, my uncle who was a TCK also said to me once, he said, you know, you can explain who you are as well. It's kind of arrogant to think you're the only one that has to change. But if there's something that, you know, is between um, when we were in Liberia, somebody wanted somebody, a kid who was working for us wanted every night he would just bring his books and expect to be at my kitchen table to study. And I felt bad because I knew he needed lights. But anyway, my uncle said, well, just explain to him that in your culture, you have, you know, a certain family time. But what was interesting was when I said, okay, um, if you just ask me permission or if it's a good night to come and stay. And then, you know, cause usually we have some family time at night. And so he started asking and the minute he asked me, I didn't mind. And I thought, okay, my culture is you just don't take without asking, you don't take my space. And once he asked about it, then it was fine. And he's gone on to become our son and so forth. But, mm. you know, sometimes we have to say, who am I? And what do I have to explain about me as well? I know you have many talents, but is there one in particular that you like to present, show, or sing to us today? This segment is Culture's Got Talent. You don't want me to sing. And I think that uh, my main talent would be writing. Um, mm. That when somebody asked me what my hobbies were, you know, I don't have like a lot of crochet. I don't, I don't do anything artistic, which is why I always thought I wasn't creative. And then I realized I like to create with ideas. My first book was Letters Never Sent, which was the journaling. And in that is probably where you would see mostly how my heart works, how my mind works, and how all of that leads me to understanding and putting words on my story. I think that's probably what my my talent is, is asking questions and pursuing until I find the aha. 
that gives me language. Language is very important to me. Could you please, can you please deliver to us a short passage or some parts of, of your journal or your book that you feel like really represents your writing? Well, this is just the very first uh, letter that's in my Letters Never Sent. And I just, uh, uh, this was going back to trying to understand my story. And my daughter was going to leave and I was having this old depression come. And I thought it must have to do with my own leaving. So probably when I wrote this letter, everything that I've done since then started because I began to understand my story and to put language. Because the minute I wrote this, as I said last time, I could feel the child in boarding school. Dear mom and dad, I feel awful. Something inside is squeezing me so bad I can hardly breathe. You said that it would be fun to get on the plane and go to boarding school, but so far it isn't. I couldn't stop crying on the airplane but I didn't want the other kids to know. I kept my face to the windows so they might think I liked watching the clouds. When I got to school this afternoon, I was still crying and I just couldn't stop. The missionary aunties who met us said I should be more like Maybeth. Try to be big and brave like your sister, they said. She's not crying. They don't know Maybeth never cries, not even when Spotty got run over by the car or our pet bird died. How can I be like her? And how can I live without you? It feels like my heart got pulled out of me today. Love, Ruth Ellen. And that's how it started to go back and say, what was that experience? What was that missing? So that was going back and touching my six-year-old self. And that was the journaling. And what I didn't understand at first, all I could do was write what I was feeling. Like I said last time, I was feeling it, but the adult me now could put words on it. But it took me still a while to figure out, so what am I writing about? Um, I, I had to catch it while I was feeling it. Mm. That's what I do. And then I could go back and look at it. And eventually is when I realized... Um, when Dave Pollock sent me a letter from a therapist that he was talking to saying that knowing what it meant to be a person and receiving comfort were the two biggest challenges that TCK's faced that she had uh, done. And I, that's when I realized, no, I, what I'm writing about is a lack of comfort. I was encouraged to death. You know, the house mothers would say, oh, we're going to have fun tomorrow. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And everybody would encourage me, but nobody sat down and said, it's okay to be six and miss your mommy. I just want to go back to you reciting that th those stories. I just think you have a you have this magic of capturing the present moment, which is something that you mentioned in the beginning. And I feel I can really sense that because I it took me back to when I was you know six year old and mm -hmm. having that feeling of departure, whether or not it was you know in the same place or location, but it did not matter because I felt like you really embodied that character and. I got a bit, a bit teary-eyed because I could feel that emotion. So I think you have a real beauty with words and I really appreciate you for sharing that and also writing that so we can all read that together. Wow. Um, now we are kind of nearing already to 
the end of our interview. But beforehand, I'd like to ask one question, which is in the spirit of Christmas, in the spirit of giving, in the spirit of gratitude specifically, what is one superpower that you are particularly grateful for that being a TCK has given to you? Well, I think it goes along with what we've talked about before. Um, I don't know if it's a superpower, but it's this incredible sense of enjoying the world. Um, Got to eat lots of foods that other people haven't enjoying friends from everywhere. But I think the maybe the biggest thing is a larger worldview sometimes than other people might have who didn't have my experience. It doesn't mean I'm better. It just means that it's been a gift to me to see a bigger world and to know like when the war in Liberia happened, these are real people, which then transcends to knowing when I hear about other wars, these are real people. These are my friends uh, in Liberia that were suffering. And these are other people's friends that are suffering. And I don't know if that's a superpower, but I think that's really important for me that these aren't just stories in the newspaper, that whenever you hear about you know, an earthquake or, or some disaster that real people are there. But also when you hear about joy, mm. real people are having a joyous celebration, whether it's a wedding or it's, uh, you know, a country celebrating some success, you know, that there are these pe real people have real emotions everywhere. And one person said to me once that feelings are the universal language. And I think that that is maybe the, uh, that's a superpower, but I know that's true. Mm. That when people are rejoicing, they're rejoicing and feeling as glad as I would be. And if they're suffering, they're suffering as I would be. And it's part of what makes life rich for me, that we can be present emotionally with and for other people, even when we aren't there. I, I feel that a lot. I feel it coming through the Zoom screen, ironically enough. I feel your empathy and that you are in tune with the energy and what you receive and what you give. Thank you for being here and just being so generous with sharing your stories. Before we officially say goodbye, would you like to share about your current current work or anything that you'd like the audience to follow along with, anything from your end? Well, I think what you should know is that I think we're in TCK phase two. What I mean by that, it's probably more in that whole cross-cultural dynamic of the many ways people are growing up cross-culturally. And so I'm 78 now, and I feel like my main job is to prepare the next generation or to encourage them who have lived a much more complicated story than I lived to understand what does this mean? How do we unpack it? How do we use it? So I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Well, I, I actually was sick, so I couldn't go, but I did from the television screen and passed the baton to the next generation. And I felt like, you know, I've had my turn. It's your turn now. 
because there's so much we just began to understand really what a global childhood means, what cross-cultural childhood is not always that everybody travels globally, but the world is changing. And the very few people will grow up like they used to, where they're in one place and everybody around them is the same. So how do we maximize that and not run away from it in fear? Uh, so that would be my, I, I always say that my main job in life is being a cheerleader, um, trying to encourage, because I believe that as I was given the wisdom to take the next step when you don't know what you're doing, just do one thing at a time. So that is for your generation. And I appreciate so much what you're doing, that you're getting the word out, that you're going to start conversation. And it's in the conversations and telling the stories that we start to learn, because that's how it's come so far. That's how far it will be. So that's my present thing is to try to mentor uh, and encourage and help all of you build on what has been done. But there's so much more that is still to do. A pleasure. Thank you, dear Ruth, again, but as well now for everybody who took away so much, I believe, from your journey and your experiences. Thank you for all the viewers who are watching. Thank you for your time. If you have any questions, once again, to Dear Roof or to us, please feel free to put it in the comments below. Also give us a thumbs up if you enjoyed the episode. And we will see you back on Raw Culture on all our social media. There's not a chance that you'll miss us. And of course, on Octo TV, where it's broadcasted. Thank you again. This is Connecting Cultures with Wei Rong Lee. See you next time. Bye.